Thank you, Tony. Let's pray. Lord, we've read your word and sung your praises. And now as we reflect on those things, grant us the help of your spirit. Amen. I'm a very bad Methodist plan maker because I've planned myself for the fifth successive time to preach on Advent Sunday. And I've run out of Advent services. Uh, but uh, over the years, uh, I don't expect you to remember, in fact I'd forgotten until I looked in my diary and record, over the years I've spoken about the second coming, I've talked to you about being ready, we've talked about the principles of prayer and watchfulness, in one sermon we took a particular theme uh, about the differences in the interpretations of the return of Jesus. What on earth is there left to speak about? But I want to speak to you, you're not getting off that easily. And I want to remind you this morning of three things, but what I want you to have in mind is that this Advent sermon is basically standing back and looking at the whole sweep of what Advent draws attention to in the Christian calendar. Okay, this is big, wide stuff, not detailed stuff. I want to remind you that Advent, first of all, points out the Christ who came in history once for all in time. And to understand this well, you can look and rehearse at the biggest story, the biggest single story, there are many stories, that flows from the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. It goes something like this. God creates everything and it's good. But before the paint has had time to dry on the gate of the Garden of Eden, humanity messes up. Humanity rebels, it does what it shouldn't do, it listens to lies and subsequently gets thrown out or possibly simply walks out in rebellion of the garden. Humanity becomes mortal, not immortal, cursed to suffering and pain and sinfulness rather than made perfect by its creator. Humanity and creation itself, that's what the fall in the Garden of Eden is about. Humanity and creation itself has now fallen from and out of God's loving intended purposes. And then, right from that very time, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit begin to plan for the rescuing, the redeeming, and the restoration of everything. Through Abraham, God offers a covenant. Through Noah, God offers a future. Through Moses, God offers the law to live by. Through David and Solomon, God offers a place of worship and a lineage of hope. Through Isaiah and Ezekiel and Hosea and Amos and many of the other prophets, God offers instruction and guidance. Through Jeremiah particularly, God 
restores the covenant which has been broken and broken and broken by rebel humanity and says, this time I will write my laws in their hearts rather than on tablets of stone. And nothing works. Rebel humanity continues to rebel, to disobey God, and all the consequences of that rebellion manifest themselves in the world all the time. Conflict, war, abuse, greed, violence, and so on, and so on, and so on. But wonderfully, listen to this, wonderfully, God grieves over us rather than just washing hands and dispensing. God grieves over us and never, never gives up on us. And so it is that the crux of God's plan, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, comes about in time. And Jesus Christ, God's Son, Son of David, born of Mary, God, listen to this line, God sending himself, God's self, into the world, comes as a human being to come and save humanity. This is God's clear plan. It's unmistakable. That's why Jesus is called Savior or Messiah. And he comes and he teaches about God and about God's kingdom in a way no one has ever done before or since. He acts as God acts towards a fallen race. He heals and he forgives and he restores. And then he dies a death on the cross for the sins, for the fallenness, for the rebellion, and for the disobedience of all humanity. And God in Christ does for us what we could never do for ourselves. No more than we can pull ourselves up from our own boot laces. The lovely for the unlovely, the holy for the unholy. And he restores all things. He offers a new beginning. That's why, incidentally, Paul refers to Christ on a number of occasions in the New Testament as the second Adam. Only this Adam rectifies and puts right what the first Adam put wrong. That's why when John writes his gospel about Jesus, the Word made flesh, he starts his gospel with these three words, in the beginning. And literate people who know anything of the scriptures say, I've heard that somewhere before. It's, it, it's in that book that starts the Old Testament in Genesis, in the beginning. Because what John is saying to you is, here is a book about the word of God, the Christ who came, who effectively takes us from the flawed beginning in Genesis to a new beginning in hope, made possible in Christ. 
It's deliberate. It's a new start and a possibility of a new start for us all. So in Advent, we remember this history. It's the season where we're meant to remember our big story. And remember that those who longed for the, through the centuries for the Messiah, the Savior, to come, in some senses, they were waiting for the first appearance of Christ. Just as, and I'll get to it in a few moments, we're waiting for the final appearance of Christ. And today, we remember a Christ who came for us and for our salvation. And although Advent is meant to be a quite solemn and sober season, I hope every one of us in this congregation, when I say, and he came, is able to say in their own hearts, thank you, Lord. But there's more. More or else, his coming once in time, 2,000 years ago, for all its wonder, is simply a kind of historical fact that you get round to every so often to remember. When in order to be what God intends in the coming of Jesus Christ, faith in him needs to be not rooted in a historical fact. It needs to be rooted in reality in our lives. Because Jesus' death is not the end of the story. He's not only the Lamb of God, he's the Lord of life. By God's power, he's raised from death and after teaching truths of the kingdom of God to his stunned disciples, he ascends back into heaven, the end of his earthly life, his native heaven, Charles Wesley says. I love that line. So what happens then? We're left to our own devices. We're meant to remember the things he says. No, says God. And in this great story of the scripture from Genesis to Revelation, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit reconciled, if you like, back in heaven in this kind of temporal way of viewing these things. Conspire and talk and plan together. And as a result, God self-sends again. And the Holy Spirit falls upon the early disciples and tells them to go from Jerusalem to Samaria to the ends of the earth. And you have the words of Jesus ringing in their ears. I am with you always. And receive the Holy Spirit. Are you following the story? It's our story. It's not just a story. It's the story that makes sense of our lives and our faith. So we stand in that tradition as people who have not been left bereft and comfortless and powerless because filled with the Holy Spirit, we are sent into the world in the name of Jesus to tell of his saving plan 
to be his representatives, to be like him. And that's the tradition and the story in which we stand. And for people who have professed Jesus as their Lord and sought the power of the Holy Spirit to live their lives, as I've said, it's the story that makes most sense of their lives. You see, at Advent, we remember not only the Christ who came once in time, but we remember, secondly, the Christ who comes repeatedly to us in the power of the Holy Spirit. And in every situation, in every way that's right for that situation, Jesus continues to come. And we can trust him. I've told this story several times in my life, and some of you might have heard it in a different context, but if we can put the slide up, Ruth. This uh, means a great deal to me. About 19 years ago, I was in hospital. Don't need to know why, I'm still here. But I was having various tests, and the day after was a liver biopsy, and uh, I was laid in bed, and I'd been poorly for several months, and I really thought that perhaps the upshot of all these tests would be that I had to take early retirement or cease to be a minister. This was the year 2001. And there I was in Northern General Hospital, laying in a, a ward that resembled Beirut. Never, nobody ever seemed to go to bed at all, and I'd been there three days and not slept above two hours. Anybody else ever had that experience in hospital, you'll know exactly how I felt. It was Helen's birthday. It was the 2nd of July. And it was the, the only time in our lives that we'd not met. Uh, and I'd not taken her out. Isn't that sweet? Romantic at heart, you see. So there I am. I'm laid in this hospital bed. I've got no card, no present, no sleep. And Helen comes and visits me. And tomorrow's all the tests. And... Uh, she said to me, now try and get your head down when I leave. And visiting stopped at about 8 o'clock and they allowed her to stop a little bit afterwards. And then about half past 8, the, the nurse came along and said, come on everybody, end of visiting. So she gave me a kiss and she went. And fortunately, two of our good friends were taking her out, so I felt a bit better. And I'd noticed at the other side of the ward, where the other beds were, a clock from probably from the 60s or 70s. It was plastic, it was square, and the time, hours and minutes, it, it told the right time. Uh, but the, the day and the month must have broken, what, in 1987 or something, and they'd never done anything about it, and so there it was. And I'm feeling grumpy, and I put my head on the pillow, and I look across at this clock which is exactly opposite my bed just about to moan and groan that it won't even tell accurately what day it is and what time it is but also praying at that time a bit like Tony has mentioned where's the future where am I going what's supremely important some of you have been in situations like that, I've no doubt. And then I suddenly saw it. 
it was 8.43 at night, and sometime in the 1980s probably this clock had stopped on the 24th day of the fifth month. And suddenly into the head of this Methodist preacher came that most famous statement of John Wesley in his journal, that it was about a quarter before nine on the 24th of May, 1738, that John Wesley had his heartwarming experience. But the line that came out of that memory of his journal that night was, and an assurance has been given me. In other words, Jesus comes. And he comes into different conditions and different situations and different contexts and different needs in a way that's absolutely right for the context or the need. Christ who came is the Christ who comes and comes for our benefit and for our comfort and for our faith. Yet sometimes it doesn't seem like it, does it? Sometimes his coming seems to take forever or sometimes his coming seems mismatched. Sometimes rescue or deliverance in any practical sense isn't forthcoming. But we're given two things and we remember them in, in Advent. They're both gifts of the Holy Spirit. We're given strength and we're given faith in hope. So thirdly, on Advent Sunday, we've got the Christ who came, the Christ who comes. And we've got, of course, that theme that's so clear in our Bible reading and is a, a major theme of the early part of Advent. We've got the Christ who comes again. From the Jesus who can be trusted, we get the words, I will come and I will take you to myself so that where I am, you can be. He also said, the Son of Man will come again in glory and no one knows the day or the hour. He will come like a thief in the night. So watch, be ready. And so you see in 2019 on Advent Sunday, we live in kind of in-between times. He's come and he does come and he will come. And these in-between times have lasted a long while. I love that line. I used it, if you remember, at the start of the sermon. Wake up. Remember that your salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. You see, it may be that Christ comes again before we die, or it may be that Christ comes again after we've died. But either way, we'll be with the Lord. Advent talks about judgment, and believe it or not, two out of the five Advent services, I've focused on judgment. 
It's absolutely right to ask the question on Advent Sunday that if Jesus Christ comes back one minute after the end of this service as Lord and Judge and everything says enough and that cataclysmic happening happens, where will we find ourselves? It's a perfectly reasonable Christian question. But this morning what I want to focus upon is what happens after that. Because after the tribulations of the world are over and after the Lord has arrived, whenever that takes place and we don't know, we read that every tear is wiped from every eye. That every disease is but a memory. That every sadness is placed in a sea of joy. And there is eternal life with the Lord. And those who have loved him in this life can love him in eternity. And those whom he has loved with an everlasting love remain in that love. It may take a long while yet. How long the people of Israel waited for the Messiah. I mean, we, we sing Handel's Messiah and the time between the prophecies of Isaiah and Jeremiah and the birth of Jesus Christ is what, about three quarters of an hour? But the distance in time between Isaiah and Jeremiah and Jesus is 600 years. That's why we sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel. Waiting is a tiring process, and sometimes waiting is a long process. But eventually, even though it may take hundreds of years, the promises of God are true and are fulfilled. Now, what about the title of this sermon as I move to a close? Where does that come from? Well, some of you will recognize it as the words of Mother Julian of Norwich. She was a 14th, early 15th century Christian mystic, and writer, her most best-known book uh, about revelations of divine love. And one of the most famous instances in that book is she writes of a vision she has of God where God places in the palm of her hands a small round thing like a hazelnut, she says. And she asks God, what is this? And God replies, and she's a mystic, remember. God replies, it is all that I have made. And Mother Julian wonders at it. And she thinks, how can something so small and so fragile not fall to nothingness, not just disappear? And in her spirit, she says she knows the answer. She says this, it lasts and it shall last forever for three reasons. The first is that God made it. The second is that God loves it. And the third is that God keeps it. And it's a much better and much shorter way of saying what I've been saying for the last 17 minutes. 
as Advent Sunday begins, Christ came, Christ comes, and Christ will come again because we, like all things, are made and loved and kept by God. Which caused Mother Julian of Norwich to say her most famous line. Armed with that view about the ultimate reality in the universe, being the redemptive love of God, she said, therefore, and she said it in a pretty turbulent time, therefore, all will be well, and all will be well, and all manner of things will be well. It's not blind optimism. It's not ostrich-like. It's not sticking your fingers in your ears or closing your eyes while you're humming Rule Britannia. It's the opposite of that. It's raw, strong, unquenchable hope. Which is why, out of all the descriptions the Christian church has used down 20 centuries to describe this season, it has described it as the Advent hope. So today, and I finish, whatever your situation, however you find yourself in body, mind, and spirit today, take Christ to yourself again. Thank God that he came. Praise God that he comes and continues to come to us for our protection and our benefit. And believe and know that God keeps what he loves. And that includes you. And finally, hope in faith that he will come one day to take his own to be with him and know that that will be forever. Because you see, in the end, in this big picture that you've been very patient in bearing with, the Advent hope, the Christian faith, is ultimately about all will be well, and all will be well, and all manner of things will be well. Amen. So we sing together.